0: Well good evening. Hey, someone gotten the chance to meet you, I'm Scott Bankson, one of the members here at NBC. This is the second message in our Wednesday evening series on the Ten Commandments in Exodus 20. Uh, go ahead and turn there now. Uh, if you're using a pew Bible, it's on page 64. Last month Nathan Hanley kicked off the series by preaching about the first command, have no other gods besides God himself. Tonight, we're going to focus on the second command. Would you please stand as I read the text uh, for tonight? It's in Exodus 20, verses 4 to 6. It says, Do not make an idol for yourself, whether in the shape of anything in the heavens above, or on the earth below, or in the waters under the earth. Do not bow and worship to them. Do not serve them. For I, the Lord, your God, am a jealous God, bringing the consequences of the fathers of equity and the children to the third and fourth generations of those who hate me, but showing faithful love to a thousand generations of those who love me and keep my commands. This is the word of God. Praise Praise be to God. You may be seated. I have three points from the text. I haven't gone enough Phil's classes to get ones that do any kind of acronym or whatever it is, but... Here's the three points that we'll talk about tonight. First one is, what is an idol? Who has them? Second one, what are the consequences of having idols? And then thirdly, how can we love and keep God's commands? So first, what is an idol and who has them? Second, what are the consequences of having these idols? And then third, how can we love and keep God's commands? What comes to your mind when you hear the word idol? Maybe a TV show called American Idol? where we look on as America searches for a superstar. Or maybe it's a Buddhist statue. When the Bible mentions idols, most of the time it is talking about a man-made physical object, like the golden calf of Aaron. As we hear this, most of us may assume we're obeying this command since we don't have any golden calves in our house or any statues. But in Ezekiel 14.3 it says, These men have set up idols in their hearts and have put their sinful stumbling blocks in front of themselves. So an idol does not have to be something physical; It can be an idea, thought, feeling. Idols originate in our minds and our hearts and are made by our own hands and wills. In verse five, we see that once we have made these idols, we then worship and serve them. A definition of worship is giving our minds attention and our hearts affection to something or someone. We are created to worship. The question is, what and who are we worshiping? Everyone is a worshiper, even unbelievers. Everyone will worship something or someone, God or an idol. Idols, too, can be served. So how do we tell if we are worshiping and serving idols? A couple questions can help us determine what is actually in our hearts. The first one is, what brings brings out the most emotion in you? The most excitement? The most angry? What are you longing for and giving your energy towards? That's the second question. So what brings out the most emotion in you, the most excitement, the most anger, or whatever the emotion is? And then secondly, what are you longing for and giving your energy towards? I'm going to give a couple examples from my life. I was, uh, by God's grace, born into a Family, parents were Christians, went to church all the time. Even at age five, I remember standing up in an evangelist meeting, saying, okay, I believe in this, Uh, hearing the gospel, yeah, I believe it. But the reality was, when you look at my life for the next 25 years, it was really about something different than what was in my mind. Um, Growing up, uh, and I still am today, um, but growing up when I was younger, I was uh, very competitive. Um, love to win. There is no second place. You either win or you try again next year. No, no presentation trophies. Um, and that came out in a lot of different ways. Um, but the biggest one was sports, and the sport that I loved the most when I was younger was baseball. Uh, grew up in a family that loved the Boston Red Sox. I'm gonna love the Red Sox too. See Mark now on is down there. You've been there. You've been there. You understand. You've been up there. Um, it got to the point when uh, in uh, 10, 11, 12 years old, back then you couldn't, and here's why I need your help, Phil, couldn't watch ESPN, you couldn't pull out your app to see what was going on. You either had to stay up and watch the 11 o'clock news to find out did your team win or not, or you got up the next morning, got the newspaper, and then, all right, fine. So every morning I'd get up, and that was the first thing, go to the newspaper, Find out, what did they, did they win or not? Not only did you see whether they won or not, but I had to read the whole article, going through just, you know, what, what happened in the game. Looking at all the statistics. All right, Jim Rice, two for four. Oh, home run, couple of eyes. Oh, yeah, that puts him up here. Just pouring over the whole statistics. I mean, I knew it all and lived it all. Not only falling of that, but my uh, best friend and I, we would play wiffle ball during the summer. Out in the backyard, just hours and hours of wiffle ball. I was the Red Sox, he was the Mets. And you would go through the lineup and you would bat, just like your favorite star did. You'd get in the position, all that. If you were pitching, yeah, I'm throwing these type of balls because I'm just the pitcher. Just over and over again, everything revolved around that. Uh, anybody, Mark will know, if you've been up in that Boston area, there was a long drought where the Red Sox did not win the World Series. Um, 1918 was when I was young, was the last time they had won. 1975, they made it to the World Series against the big red machine, Cincinnati Reds. And I was 10 years old, got to stay up, watch some of the games, which was real nice. And I remember game six, the Red Sox were down 3-2, and goes into the 12th inning. And just now, by you know, what's going to happen? Carlton Fisk sits up, hits a shot down the left of the line in Boston with the big green monster, and it's going. Is it going to be fair? Is it going to be foul? Is it going to be fair? And he's waving and he's jumping. He's waving, it and sure enough, home run, 12th inning, it's a walk, was running around. They still show it all the time up in the Boston area. I mean, it's just part of the culture there. Run around, knocking people over as people are just streaming onto the thing. Walk off home run, just huge excitement at um, myself at that point. Next the day, they lose and just utter disappointment, anger, frustration that they lost. Well, fast forward now. Eleven more years of just heartache up and down, up and down. Well the Red Sox when I'm in college, nineteen eighty six, get to go back to the World Series again. This time they're playing against the Mets. My friend's best team, I'm like, doesn't matter. (laughs) They're still Red Sox gonna win this one. Well this time, game six comes along, the Red Sox are up three to two, and it gets down to the ninth inning, they got one more out. And I gotta show this here if I can I understand. One more out, Mets hit, it's ground ball, just routine, no big deal, Bill Buckner. Looks like a perfect tee ball guy, he looks at it, and it goes literally right through his legs. Guy comes around, ties the game up, the Red Sox eventually lose. I am just livid out of anger and frustration that I played first. I mean, it was an easy play but yet that anger and frustration, the next night they lost again. Just devastation all over this. Um, So that was one of my idols, was just all around any kind of sporting thing I played. Never played it for just the fun of it. Very rarely it always had to be about the competition winning. The other one came out, especially around my college time, had to do with um, just the sense of excitement and adventure that college life and parties would give. And so I worked hard to study, but after it was time to go enjoy yourself, where's the party, where's the next party? And that's where I was going. The music's gonna be going, it's got the most beer, that's where I was at. Um, The other thing that came up in that uh, time was that I was in Navy ROTC, and I was four choices for you where you'd go either drive a ship, drive an airplane, you know, go fly, drive a submarine, or be in the Marines. I was like, is this a trick question? (laughs) <laughs> I want to go fly, because when I was freshman year, we went down to Pensacola, Florida on a spring break trip. Was up, you know, grew up in the Northeast, so it's raining and snowing there, beautiful weather down there, just seeing the airplanes and all that. And I was just like, yeah, this is where I want to be. The next summer, got to go to NES Oceana. This is where the F-14 pilots, the fighter pilots at the time, got to hang out. O Club on a Friday night, the music's hopping. Just, oh, this is it was awesome. I just wanted to be there. Um, just fed into my um, idols of what I wanted to do. Being there, and then the next year, 1986, when I was a, uh, going into my senior year in college, Top Gun, the movie came out, the original one, and it just reconfirmed everything that I'd already been there. So that when I went down to flight school, I just I lived it out. I mean, really, that's why I was so. Interesting going back and watching Maverick that just came out to say, okay, what's, how's he changed over these years? Because I've seen a lot of changes in my life. His weren't quite the same, but still, it was. <laughs> anyway, that was, I could tell you more story. I don't know if you want anyone to hear about him, but it's one of those things that um, I, during that time, there were definitely times where if you were as a Christian would see me, people would be like, oh, Why are you doing that? But yet I could have that life. Sunday morning came around, put on my Christian knees, walk into church, and just come in, sit like all you guys doing here and worshiping. And God was starting to slowly trying to get my attention, get my attention. Got married during that time, had a couple kids, and I was so blessed that she was one of them, but got here to Memphis, and uh, started going um, through a divorce at the time, and at the time, I was like, what, I'm this great guy, look at you, know, I got this great job, and you know, all these wonderful things, and it was really God having to start chipping away at idols in my life, and so... In his mercy and grace, he used that divorce to begin convicting me of my sins. A few years after na- marrying Nancy, the Red Sox finally won the World Series in 2004. Been a long 86 years since the Red Sox last won the World Series. Watched a few of the games. Was glad they did. But Nancy was like, what? They did win? What?" It, it, if you look to what it had been, there was a change. There was definitely something that was going on different. Uh, why? Well, this was now becoming an idol in my past. It, the importance of it was being outweighed by other things. But now, even more, after getting married with Nancy and beginning a life with her, even more insidious idols began to surface. Uh, when Nancy and I got married, we served a Jesus with the attributes we wanted him to have, and we left out the attributes we found offensive. Our theme verse was Jeremiah 29.11 about about how God has plans for us to prosper us. We took this verse out of context and began making an idol of all the things Jesus was going to do for us. The Jesus we worship gave us an easy gift of salvation, helped us uh, get a great spouse, great job, so we could live in the safe suburbs. We get our kids into church and school programs to help them live moral lives so they wouldn't get derailed from our ultimate goal, which was for them to go to a good college get a good job, get a spouse, have grandkids. It's like, ah, heaven on earth. And Jesus was there to make these dreams come true. It wasn't a full-blown prosperity gospel, but I like to call it a watered-down version of what the prosperity gospel was. And even when I started my Open Door Memphis construction company and thought I was obeying God's commands in the Bible, this ministry became more about social justice, and exposed my heart to be more passionate for it than for my wife and kids. Sadly, my family came second to my ministry, which showed that it was an idol of mine. These past few years i have been on a slow, painful journey of conviction of my sin and repentance. Jeremiah 17.9 sums up my heart. The heart is more deceitful than anything else and incurable. Who can understand it? Now to my second point: What are the consequences from God because of our idols? In verse five, there in Exodus, it says that the Lord your God is a jealous God. Some nonbelievers will point to a verse like this and say that the God of the Bible is petty and jealous. Our definition of jealous: uh, one definition of jealous says fiercely protective or vigilant of one's rights and possessions. God chose His covenant people, starting with Abraham. And he goes to great lengths to protect the crowning glory of his creation from the destruction that falling idols will cause. He has shown himself to be a good and faithful. He's jealous for our affections and allegiance because he alone is God. Idols tell two lies, one about God and the second about themselves. God who is worthy of all glory is regarded as insignificant. He is the glorious one and yet idolatry treats him as if something is better. Idols also lie about themselves. It's a created thing, yet it wants to be esteemed as if it's the creator and redeemer. God takes offense to idol worship. He's not playing around. The consequences are severe. If a person knew their spouse was in an adulterous relationship, it would provoke anger. Why? Because the affections exclusively theirs by right has been given to another. Idolatry arouses God's holy wrath. You want to see how serious God takes idolatry? Look to the cross. Jesus, the perfect one, bore the penalty for our idolatry. God still takes idolatry seriously. We're to put it to death. We're not to get complacent with anything that rivals Jesus for the throne of our hearts. Colossians 3, 5 to 6 says, Therefore, put to death what belongs to your earthly nature sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desire and greed, which is idolatry. Because of these, God's wrath is coming upon the disobedient. So for non-Christians, the wrath of God is eternal separation from his presence. For Christians, one day when we stand before God, before God our work here on earth will be tested by God's holy fire. Our idols will be burned up, but our work's done on the foundation of Jesus Christ. They will result in a reward in heaven. Now, for the third point how can we love and keep God's commands? Back in verse 6 of Exodus, we see that God shows us faithful love to a thousand generations of those who love me and keep my commands. Why the difference between three to four generations of those who hate me in contrast to the thousand generations? Well, in the Bible, 1,000 is often used as an extremely large number, like we would say gazillions. God is saying his love is so much bigger than our sin. Now, do we earn God's love by working harder to love him better and keep his commands more faithfully? The answer is no, according to the true gospel. We were dead in our sins. God's son became man, perfectly obeyed, and died on the cross for our rebellion. Jesus paid our debt a death we owed God. So in his mercy, he convicts and forgives us when we repent and trust him alone for our salvation. Some will say that becoming a Christian takes away our enthusiasm because we have to keep all these commands and die to all the things that bring us joy. The opposite is actually true. When Jesus recreates us for his workmanship, he redirects the enthusiasm we used to have for our idols and gives us even more joy for his good works. We marvel at the beauty God created and the beautiful things we make with our hands through his power. We thoroughly love his righteousness and truth, and we can't get enough of God's holy word being read, preached, prayed, and sung. Then we can't wait to love and encourage others um, in their walk with Christ. Inclusion, i like to address those who have already been saved by Christ's grace and those who have not yet been saved. Both categories of people have idols in their lives. If you're currently a Christian and the Holy Spirit is working to demolish those idols in your life, this is the process of sanctification. I encourage you to ask your spouse or close friend to share what they see you longing for and giving your energy towards. Those two questions I mean before. Um, have those conversations. This can be a painful conversation to have since it can expose deep-seated idols we hold onto. This can also be a conversation of joy where we recount God's faithfulness and power to change your heart. For those of you who are not yet a Christian at this time, I'm glad you are here. The Bible says today, if you hear his voice, do not harden his heart, your heart. Instead, repent of your sins and put your trust in the saving work of Jesus Christ. Please stay after the service and talk with any of our members to hear more about how Christ can save you from the punishment of an eternity of separation from God. So, all of us have man-made idols we worship and serve, but God in his mercy and grace can replace those idols in our hearts and give us an ever-increasing passion for himself. The book of 1 John ends with these words, guard yourself from idols. Let's pray.